Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about the latest two commission lawsuits and what those mean in the overall picture. James, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. Good to have you back. And we are once again going to talk about the commission lawsuits because we've had even more pop-ups since the very short time ago when we talked about it. So it feels like these are multiplying like those uh, gremlins, right? You're not supposed to get them wet or whatever. <laughs> yeah, there were two more that were filed late last week, two, two more significant ones. There, there may have been others that were filed that haven't hit the court systems yet in the various jurisdictions. Um, but as, as we've always said throughout uh, the Sitzer Burnett trial, we expect a lot more cases to be filed. Um, there are going to be tons of copycat cases these are really just the first two that I think are beyond the the scope of what has already been in the pipe, right? So we already knew that Michael Ketchmark, the uh, attorney for the plaintiffs in Sitzer Burnett, was going to be filing additional actions. He did in the lawsuit known as Gibson. Um, but now we have two others, one in South Carolina, and then we have another in Manhattan in New York. So we also had last week, um, we had the National Association of Realtors president, Tracy Casper, um, address NAR members in a video um, where she kind of talked about the decision and, you know, what they should be prepared for. You know, she said a lot of things that, you know, you would expect. Um, but even in that, she said, you know, people need to be ready for more lawsuits. And it, you know, that video barely wrapped. And then uh, we had these two others. Yeah. So I, I believe it was her first communication on video since the trial. And she obviously is going to be measured in what she says. The NAR is still a defendant in a bunch of these lawsuits, they are, I think, financially speaking, if you look at the money involved, they have a $5.36 billion judgment against them. That is not an organization that has $5.36 billion. So the the state of their finances are, are probably pretty questionable right now. But, um, you know, certainly she is going to continue to argue the position that the jury got it wrong. They you know, either misinterpreted the evidence or the evidence will, you know, we know that the NAR is going to be um, appealing. They're going to try to appeal that case. Uh, we'll see how far along that gets. Uh, but the other message that she brought, aside from the fact that the jury got it wrong, that they believe the law remains on their side despite losing, which is, I think, kind of a curious argument to make. Um, she also offered more practical tips for agents who, in a lot of places are now going to be getting frequent questions because it wasn't just us and some of the other trade publications that had reported on, on this case. And the New York Times reported on it. The Wall Street Journal reported on it. Bloomberg reported on it. it. It was on USA Today. It was on local news channels where they were trying to find local real estate agents to talk about it. And, you know, it's um, it's been pretty much everywhere. And I think what was interesting about Tracy Casper's position is she's leaning into this idea that, look, you want to be transparent. You want to be upfront with either your buyer clients or your seller clients and explain what your value is, what you do, how you get paid, what the commissions are. You want to be, you know, you want to put as much sunlight as possible 
on how you do your work, how you get paid, how the other agent may get paid, or in some cases may maybe won't get paid. Um, but you want to be upfront, you want to be accountable, and you want to be very transparent about what you do. And I, I think that's good advice. And and perhaps if the NAR had that message long before any of these cases, maybe things would have been a little bit different. So let's talk a little bit about the case that's now um, the lawsuit in Manhattan. So you are uh, you not only live in New York City, you have reported on New York City for years. It is its own very distinct animal. So let's talk a little bit about how this lawsuit relates to Manhattan. Yeah. So the first thing you need to understand about New York specifically Manhattan real estate, is that it is unlike any other market in the country, not just because of the kind of unique properties that are available. It's, it's not often that you'll find a, a $150 million apartment in, you know, on the 105th floor of a building somewhere in, in the US. You know, you see that occasionally in places like Hong Kong or Dubai or, you know, certain markets, of course, but Really, New York is kind of unique in that respect. But even beyond just the properties themselves and the, you know, the glitz, the glam that is associated with them, you also need to think about how the brokerages are positioned and a, a, a kind of, I guess, dicey history between them. And so the New York City marketplace has been residential brokerages that have been fighting amongst one another, tooth and nail for decades, decades. At any given time, there's rumors being spread about another brokerage. There's, you know, clawbacks for an agent who decided to leave for a rival. There's, there's litigation, there's lawsuits, there's always some, some sort of uh, backstabbing. It's, it's very high drama. It's very high stakes. And, and the commissions, the money that, changes hands in New York is unlike that of any other market. I mean, even LA, even other really expensive locales. And so the brokerages have never really gotten along. And so the de facto MLS for most people who live in New York has been Zillow because unlike other marketplaces where the local association of realtors came together and said, okay, we're going to be creating the MLS and, you know, maybe down the road, that data is going to eventually be fed into Zillow. The system in New York, we, we never really had a very clear, strong residential MLS. And so we now have the Rebney RLS. So Rebney is the Real Estate Board of New York. It is probably the most powerful trade organization, certainly among the most powerful trade organizations in New York, uh, really probably anywhere in the country. It is both commercial real estate interests, big developers, commercial brokerages like JLO and Cushman Wakefield and Seville's and, you know, there, there's a million of them. Um, and then there's also the residential side. The way it's worked in New York has always been sort of that the people on the resi brokerage side always felt like they their interests were secondary to that of the commercial side. And you could sort of see it manifest in how long it took for Redney to roll out this so-called RLS, which is their version of an MLS. A couple important things before we go forward is the RLS is not a realtor-owned association. 
They do not have to and do not abide by the NAR rules for code of ethics, for transactions, whatever. Um, however, a lot of the practices that you see in the Redney RLS are just like that of any other MLS in the country. What you do see is there are sell-side brokers, there are buy-side brokers, there are brokers who do it all, right? You know, in, in most of the cases, what you see is a company like Compass or a Douglas Elliman or, you know, Fox Residential, like any of them, you know, you name them. Um, and they're going to be working with parties on both sides of the transaction. And these are, generally speaking, properties that are going to trade for more than a million dollars, right? Uh, the average, not average, the median, I think even one bedroom in New York is well over one four at this point. So, you know, the vast majority of stock in Manhattan is going to be pretty pricey. That doesn't mean that the brokers are going to get 6% every time, but the RLS rules have stipulated in the past. Let me pull it up here for everybody so they can see. Uh, according to this lawsuit, the Redney Universal Co-Brokerage Agreement forced the seller, uh, who is the complainant, to pay an alleged inflated commission fee to the buyer's broker. The inclusion of language concerning the commission to be paid by the seller broker to the buyer broker in the listing agreement, commonly known as the buyer's broker commission rule, constitutes an antitrust violation under Section 1 of the Sherman Act and the Donnelly Act, and there is no separate negotiation competition concerning the commission paid to the buyer broker, the filing reads. So in other words, the Redney Listing Services Commission Rule has fostered an environment in which the brokers are working cooperatively to split the commission instead of a situation where maybe the buyer independently decides that they're going to pay their own agent, right? Which is one of the potential outcomes um, in, in some of the other commission cases. So I think the significance here is you have a marketplace that is totally like any other in the country, but the practice of cooperative compensation is really the target of this lawsuit. That's so interesting. And and let's note that um, besides Rebney, there are 25 other defendants named here and all of the people you named already, you know, just all, all of the big brokerages in New York. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a who's who. And, and, you know, the reason you do that is because one, they have all, <laughs> they've all worked on deals since 2019, the filing period. And maybe you get a quick settlement out of them. You know, maybe, maybe they decide, well, the Rebney policy is already in, in transition. They, they've already moved away from some of these policies. And that's almost like a tacit admission that maybe this was not the most sensible thing. Maybe we're open to litigation or liability. And so if you're a savvy lawyer and the attorneys who filed this case are very well-known antitrust attorneys you know, these are not like fresh-faced associates, uh, you know, who, who are just trying to make a name for themselves. They're pros. They do this for a living. They go after antitrust cases. If they think there's a good case to be won, you know, Rebney is also, I think, a pretty visible target and they are changing that law. So what's going to happen moving forward, I believe starting in January, so a little over a month and change away, is... Instead of a seller paying a buyer broker or a seller's agent paying a buyer broker or a buyer agent, it is the seller themselves paying 
the buyer's agent directly. As far as I am aware, and as we've stated in the past, I am not a legal scholar. I am a mere hobbyist who really enjoys the show Suits. I know it's not highbrow <laughs> television, but you know that that gives you so much street cred right there. You yes, there, there you go. You know? Yeah, I, I know my stuff, right? Um, but but I would say, as far as I can tell, there is no there is no law that prevents a seller from directly compensating a buyer agent as long as it wasn't coerced, as long as they're full knowledge of what they're doing, they can pay whoever they want. It's their money. Um, it gets a little bit more complicated when you have the agent and their fiduciary duties and whether a broker is making that distinction. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that could ultimately end up being a policy change that is adopted, you know, on a lot of other actual NAR affiliated, you know, realtor associations, the MLSs. And we are still waiting on the judge in the Sitzer Burnett case, are we not, to to really lay out what the injunction is? What is the result of, you know, of course, they, there's a huge fine, but then what does it mean for the practice in, uh, of real estate as a buyer's agent? Um, and we still don't know that, right? We don't. We, we know that there's going to be a hearing a week from today. We're, we're chatting on Monday the 13th of November. And on the 20th, there is a proposed settlement agreement between the judge in that case, Judge Stephen Bow, and Remax anywhere, and the plaintiffs, you know, Michael Ketchmark's uh, clients. So, to refresh everyone, you know, anywhere is settled for, gosh, I think it's about eighty-four million, and Remax settled for about fifty-five million, and that would be to settle pretty much all the litigation associated with these cases, not just the Sitzer Burnett case. And as part of that, they have also changed their practices and policies to really break away from the NAR. So that that is going to be a pivotal pivotal date in when when we look at kind of the, the timeline of all these cases and all of the various permutations. I would imagine that the injunctive relief would come after that. However, to throw another <laughs> wild card in there, we know that the DOJ is interested in they're closely monitoring any settlement that might come in the Sitzer Burnett case. So we might be delayed if they do decide, hey, you know what? 55 million isn't good enough. The 84 million isn't good enough. We're going to need you to extract a, you know, a couple more pounds of flesh uh, before we, we start to sign off on that kind of thing. Boy, I mean, if they could, if that settlement goes through and that's all they had to pay for all of these things going on, they that looks pretty good for them. I mean, yes and no. Like, I, I think, yes, it could have been worse. But the reason that those settlements are what we consider to be like relatively low sums is because I, I think our minds play tricks on us because we see the 5.36 billion, we see the 200 billion or whatever the number was, which would be 600 billion. It's almost like play money. It's pretend money because none of these brokerages, even if you added all of them up, have that much money. The NAR only had a billion and it's not even liquid, right? Like some of that is our pricey office space in Chicago. Some of that is other, you know, they have kind of like these tech companies that are under their uh, control, right? I mean, they, they're not, the NAR does not have a hundred billion. It doesn't have 200 billion. So like, what do you get a bankruptcy out of it? All the money is actually in the hands of the real estate agents. When you look at the commissions, right? So if I'm a compass agent and I sell a home for a million dollars, I get my 3%. I'm going to give between 10, 15, maybe 20% 
of my 3% to the brokerage, to Compass, and I keep the rest. I'm keeping, you know, the vast majority of the money that is actually transacting in terms of the commission. Compass, like all of these brokerages operate on very thin margins. It's why some of them have introduced different mechanisms such as like downlining, right? EXP, Keller Williams to an extent where you have an element of recruiting that has become another business kind of like unto itself, right? Like you you, you have to separate sort of the, the actual home sales from other elements of the business because they need to be a little bit healthier. They, they need to have a more robust, I'm struggling to find the right term here, but they, they just need to be a little bit more bulletproof because in a bad quarter, they're in the red. And in even a good quarter, they might still be in the red because it's a really low margin business. It's just like mortgage, right? Like you can still do pretty well and not do particularly well. Like, you know, the best mortgage companies right now are winning because of servicing. They're not winning because of originations. The real estate brokerages don't have that luxury. They are singularly focused. Now, some of them have ancillary business lines that they have really tried to get a foothold in title affiliations, right? Their own JV mortgage companies or other affiliations. That is how they're trying to push up their margins because they know that, you know, you make a 2% gamble that goes the wrong way and you're screwed, right? You're totally screwed. All the money goes to the agents until the agents themselves are a threat or, or threatened by this litigation in a very real and practical way. You know, on the, the thing is like, if these plaintiffs aren't going after the actual money, which is not the brokerages, it's not even the NAR, it's the agents themselves. You know, I, I just don't see how in the end we're going to change that much, you know, in terms of how a home seller and a home buyer interact with agents. I think what this, uh, what these lawsuits really point out is that, for many people, they might only buy one house. I mean, of course, there are people who, who never buy a house, or maybe they've only done it one or two times in their life. They are not well versed on this process, and so a, a big part of the defense has to be, and I, and also for the you know uh, for the plaintiffs' lawyers has to be to outline how this all works because your your normal person's like, I'm not exactly sure how this happens, or why do I get you know as the uh, as the buyer, why is the seller paying that, and is that set in stone? I mean, a lot of these things. Um, have not been clear, but I don't, especially don't think they're clear to the people who, you know, they're trying to help, which is the consumers. And it's also confusing because some of the, a lot of these brokerage, the corporate structures that they have, like, I mean, it's like a Russian nesting doll. Like you open one up and it's like random blah, 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 real estate company LLC is incorporated in like, you know, the British Virgin Islands. And that is, you know, spawned three other holding or shell corporations. And then below those are a couple others. And then you finally get to, you know, some of the actual companies and then the franchises beneath them. Like as professionals, we are able to navigate that fairly well, but we do this for a living. You can't expect, you know, a mechanic in Missouri who has never, you know, thought or cared, like why would why would he or she care about this kind of thing anyway? But it does, I think, create um, just this this sort of like sense of that there's something going on here, right? That like, oh, you have to create all these like fake dummy corporations. You had to be, 
It can't just be like, you know, a company that's headquartered in my hometown and has, uh, you know, a very clear sign on, on the door. And I think that adds to some of the confusion that the structures are not easy to follow and the way that people get paid and how small the profits and, and the margins are, the actual brokerages um, is, is really interesting. And a lot of agents don't even take advantage of the vast majority of the services that these brokerages say they provide, right? So that's, there's no money in the brokerages. I mean, there's maybe a little bit of money, but not not 200 billion, you know, 600 billion. Well, and you and I talked last week about like, uh, a comparable class ac- action lawsuit was against the tobacco companies. I actually think it was less for the tobacco companies where you're, where you can prove harm like over decades where you can prove all this stuff. So to me, it's just so interesting to uh, you know, the harm that was caused. And also to your point, so much of the money that's uh, made in the transaction goes straight into the pocket of a very local person that is very involved in their community, all that. So you don't really have that big corporate, uh, bad guy to paint. Although that's what Ketchmark did, right? I mean, he kept talking about this as, you know, you know, making a strike against, you know, corporate greed. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe, right. I mean, there's, there's greedy people everywhere, but like a lot of the money is going to the the person who's sponsored the little league team. Yeah. You know, and there are a lot of successful people in real estate. There are a lot of, um, you know, I, I think, you see the Frederick Eklund's and the Ryan Sarant's on TV and, and maybe someone is, is fooled by that, but the average real estate agent doesn't look anything like that. And they're much more likely to be the sponsor for the local little league than they are to be, you know, high kicking on cameras for Bravo or running uh, a corporation for Warren Buffett or, you know, Gary Keller is an immensely successful guy and um, has really innovated a lot in the space as well. He's a big success story, but how many Gary Kellers are there? You know, one, there's only one, right? So it's, it's hard for me to, as somebody who's, who's studied this industry for about a decade, um, buy those arguments. I, I think they ring hollow to me, but I guess if you're someone who's not as familiar with how it works, because you only do it once, maybe twice, maybe, maybe a couple more times, but you know, even then, like how many of them really get into the nuances of how a commission is actually um, allocated? Not many. It, it makes it difficult. Yep. I think it's a great point. It does make it difficult. Um, and I think that this is going to be what, you know, both sides are going to be focused on. If, if I'm the defense, I am definitely trying to, you know, make these distinctions and really talk about the value. And, uh, but we'll see. Um, we didn't, uh, we're almost out of time here, but we do have a case. South Carolina, the same. And we know that Brooklyn is, is, uh, you know, watching the, the Lexus Nexus looking for uh, what's filed next. It seems like every day we have a new one. Yeah. And, and we're, we're going to get to a point where we just don't write about some of them because it's, it's redundant. You know, it's going to be the same thing in every jurisdiction. It's, they're almost identical arguments. They're all virtually the same. In a lot of cases, they're the same defendants, but in other cases, they name different, you know, a new, Realist, corporate real estate defendants, um, which, which is interesting. I, I think the thing that caught my eye in the South Carolina case is who filed the lawsuit. I don't mean the plaintiff, but I mean the attorneys. So if you look at Sitzer Burnett, you look at uh, the Gibson case, the same attorney, Michael Ketchmark, you look at even the Redney case that we just talked about, right? And then there's um, you know the Morrill case, 
in Chicago. These are all helmed by very sophisticated, well-resourced law firms. That is not the case in South Carolina, where the attorney who filed it is basically, um, it's like a personal injury lawyer who does not appear to specialize in real estate or antitrust law. And I think you're going to see that that is like what I consider to be a copycat, like a very proper copycat. And I imagine he is thinking, well, that's an easy payday, right? There's a decent chance that the local Killer Williams office and wherever South Carolina is just going to say, here's $20,000, like, go away, basically. And that the broker of record is going to eat it and say, that's that. But there's going to be other threats, right? It's not only going to be Keller Williams, Home Services of America, and the NAR. We know that other brokerages are all eventually going to be named. I mean, the top 25, I think, have already been named to a lawsuit at some point somewhere in, in the LexisNexis search archives. It's just a matter of time, I think, before the MLSs are going to be named. It's a matter of time before, you know, individual agents are going to be named. Some Some sophisticated lawyer is going to take a look and say, you know what, maybe that, maybe that seller's agent misled a client. And we, we know that they actually made all the money on this transaction. The two agents made all the money. So let's see, maybe we can bully them into a settlement, right? I, I do think that there's going to be, I don't know if those will be successful. I don't know if they'll, they'll ever make it to the stage where there is an actual threat against the agent themselves, right? The commission. Um, but if, if there's anything you know, like blood in the water, attorneys are going to go to where the money is. That's why even if you're the fourth car that's hitting a pile up, you're named in the lawsuit, right? There is an off chance that you have the money and somehow you might have been culpable. Or you didn't have a turn signal on, you, you know, something, something didn't happen, even if it were not really the reason that the accident occurred. Um, that's where they try to find fault, right? That's the tactic. That is, well, we will be keeping an eye on it. We are um, also compiling it all in one place so you can find it um, the latest and we'll update that as things come in. But uh, James, thanks for being on. Thanks for your insights. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.